Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. everybody happy monday we have an amazing show for everybody today what do you have crystal indeed we do um i mean first of all i think on all of our minds is what the hell is happening with all of these things that we are now seeing in the sky and getting shot down what are they were they there before and we just didn't know about it um crazy pentagon press conference yesterday where they're like we can't rule out aliens so we're gonna go deep into all of that because it is in our wheelhouse and specifically in soccer's wheelhouse so (laughs) We'll bring all of that down for you. Also, we have some big 2024 news. Uh, Nikki Haley apparently jumping in the race this week. We've got a sneak peek at her first uh, ad that she's going to be putting out. And we also have new war of words between Trump and Ron DeSantis. Apparently, the public nickname is Ron DeSanctimonious. The private nickname is Meatball Ron. Devastating. Yes. So we'll talk about that. Um, We also have some uh, pretty extraordinary comments from uh, Brazil's President Lula with Joe Biden about Ukraine and also new indications that Russia is plotting a new offensive there. Uh, we have someone who is now accusing Mr. Beast of being ableist. You're going to enjoy listening to this piece. And we also have uh, someone who is on the ground in Ohio, is from that region of Ohio where that Norfolk Southern train was derailed. And they ended up doing a quote-unquote controlled release of the chemicals there that has resulted in a just catastrophic environmental devastation. Uh, a lot of questions there over residents are actually safe to come back to their homes. So we'll get into that as well. But let's go ahead and start with whatever is going on above, our, uh, above us in the skies right now. It has been one of the most insane 10 days in modern history for our airspace, for shootdowns. The NORAD commander actually said yesterday it's the first time ever that we've been shooting down objects in our skies, literally in American history. So let that sink in. We've had now four shootdowns in the last 11 days. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. Since we last saw you, the first object which was shot down was off the Alaskan coast over the Aleutian Islands. So this object was downed. 
at 40,000 feet and posed a, quote, reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. President Biden, all he would say about it is, quote, it was a success and the object was shot down somewhere over the islands and allegedly crashed uh, on ice. Now, to this, what we know right now, this object, uh, which we'll get to some of the characteristics of the object itself, has not yet been recovered by U.S. investigators, despite initial hmm. promises that they would do so. They're blaming it on the weather. I mean, you know, you, you could uh, empathize with that. It's pretty cold out there in Alaska. It literally landed out on the ice, so they're having some mission to try and go retrieve it. So as of yet, we still have no photo, indication, video, forensics, nothing about this said object. That was obviously one that caused a lot of consternation because it came immediately after the balloon. But then, lo and behold, on February 11th, just two days ago, let's go and put this up there on the screen, perhaps the most shocking one yet to date was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau revealing, quote, I ordered the takedown of an unidentified object that violated Canadian airspace. NORAD Command, the North American Air Defense, shot down this object over the Yukon, uh, the Yukon Territory. Canadian and U.S. aircraft were scrambled, and a U.S. F-22 fired at the object. So this was an object that was right above the Yukon Territory in Canada, scrambled by the Canadians and by the Americans. Eventually, the U.S. F-22 downs it. Now, here's the thing with these objects. Uh, with the Alaskan one, we haven't yet received any initial indication. We've got some conflicting reports about what it looked like. With the Canadian one, though, we are looking at something that's very interesting. We have some pilots that apparently have been talking behind the scenes with media outlets saying that the uh, object that was shot down interfered with sensors and some pilots claim to have seen no identifiable propulsion on the object that shot down over Canada. This was described on CNN over the weekend. Just take a listen to that. Those pilots, we have learned, have given very conflicting accounts of what they actually experienced, with some pilots saying that the, the object interfered with the plane's sensors, other pilots saying that they didn't really experience that, other pilots saying that when they looked at the object, they could identify no identifiable, uh, identifiable propulsion system, and they did not know how it was actually staying in the air, cruising at that altitude of about 40,000 feet. So this is all added to the Pentagon's wariness of describing in more detail what this object actually is. Immediately after the Canadian object, there was another indication. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. Over north central Montana, a quote-unquote NOTAM was issued, calling national defense airspace over Montana. That was one of the places where we have an intercontinental ballistic missile base. Representative Matt Rosendale of Montana put out this statement, quote, I am in constant communication with NORCOM. They have just advised me. They have confidence there is an object. It was not an anomaly. Now, the reason why is that after the this NOTAM was issued, they called a false alarm crystal. And they said, oh, actually, the object, it was an anomaly. It wasn't there. Right. Well, uh, that turns out not to have been the case. The object was there. We actually had lost track of the object until it was then shot down yesterday. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen, bringing us to our final shoot down, the final NOTAM so that far. happened. <laughs> yeah, oh, so far. That's a good point. Final NOTAM, it was issued uh, closing over Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. Eventually, that object was downed. According to what we know now, uh, U.S. representatives who've been briefed by the Pentagon, that object was the same one that was seen over Montana. This object was actually shot down at a distance much lower. It was like 25,000 feet. And uh, this one, apparently, uh, the pilots say, was ha had an octagonal shape. So if, for those who are keeping track, I've put this together. It's a real war on geometry. We've got an <laughs> octagon. We've got a cylinder. 
We've got something else. Nobody knows what the hell is what happened over Alaska. Some of them have no visible means of propulsion. They're flying all over the place, 40,000 feet, 45,000 feet, 20,000 feet. Uh, it was eventually shot down. Any questions? Yeah, I, I, have, <laughs> a lot. Uh, I have a lot, a of, lot questions. of questions. What's what's happening here? So, look, we're about to talk with a great guest, uh, Tom Rogan, an old friend of the show. Um, he's somebody very tapped into this. He's uh, for UFO people. You will know Tom. He's done some great reporting on this. Now, the reason why, uh, and I thought about this all the way back from kind of the beginning when we were talking about uh, the balloon, which is. Christopher Mellon, former Assistant Secretary of Defense, another person very big in the UFO community, has been talking about this for a long time. Here's the consider this reality. This isn't a new phenomenon. We just recalibrated our sensors. Right. So what they've been talking about, Crystal, is and Christopher Mellon has said this. Look, we we gather all this data, but the way that we decipher that data is what tells us everything. US NOR, NORAD radar sensors and all that, they're calibrated for enemy aircraft. They were not calibrated for these smaller balloons and other type of objects. Hence why, whenever we found out that the Trump administration during that time that there were two Chinese overflights of balloons that happened at that time, right. they only discovered that after, after the, the fact, fact because they rolled through the past data. So here's what happened. After the balloon, they have recalibrated the data to actually make it sensitive to identify anything as small as a Volkswagen Beetle car. That's one of the reasons why a lot of what we're discovering are quote-unquote car size, car size objects. So Tom put this out there. Let's put this up there on the screen. He says, quote, likely all of these scrambles for objects are not because the objects just started flying around, but because NORAD expanded its radar hits of interest to include balloons and smaller objects, and also it's political so that the White House told the Pentagon to tell NORAD, intercept immediately if there is any doubt. Now, once again, we have zero indication of what these objects are. I will leave it up to all of the imagination. I wouldn't dare speculate here on the show, but you can tell I'm excited. At the same time, it's a global phenomenon, people. Let's put this up there. We've had two separate instances now. The Uruguayan Air Force saying that there were, quote, flashing lights in the sky over their airspace, and actually China um, scrambling some jets and saying that they were intercepting some sort of unidentified flying object spotted near the Yellow Sea. So it's almost like a UFO swarm, if you will. And then the final, my personal favorite, while uh, we were all watching the Super Bowl, or some people were watching the Super Bowl. By the way, uh, condolences to my girlfriend's father, big Eagles fan. I feel bad for the guy uh, this morning. <laughs> but congratulations to one of our cameramen who's one of the biggest Chiefs fans Congrats, that you Colin. will ever meet. Congratulations, Cole. Uh, let's go ahead and play this clip. During the Super Bowl, the Pentagon was still giving a press conference about the sh object that we shot down yesterday over Lake Huron, where he will not rule out the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Let's take a listen. Have you ruled out aliens or extraterrestrials? And if so, why? Because that is what everyone is asking us right now. And thanks for the question, Helene. I'll let the intel community and the uh, counterintelligence community figured that out. I haven't ruled out anything uh, at this point. We continue to assess uh, every threat or potential threat unknown that approaches North America uh, with an attempt to identify it. I haven't ruled out anything. Extraordinary. That is one of the most extraordinary quotes that I've ever heard. <laughs> ever. Uh, so, I mean, look, I, I don't know what to say. I, again, my personal bias has been that we have no idea what's been flying around up there for a long yeah. time. Also, here's the other thing. Everyone's like, oh, it's clearly balloons. If they were balloons, they would say so. All right? Like, it was the Chinese balloon. We could see it, it was from the naked eye. Yeah. We had the video. If it was, if there was even a string, they would tell us it was a balloon. 
They're not saying it's a balloon. Uh, the <laughs> people who are, yeah, one <laughs> tiny little, they, one little string hanging off that thing, they'd be like, oh, it was a balloon. Don't worry about it. They, the reason why they're telling us they don't know is because they don't know. And from the pilots, look, ev- these pilots, they're standing up for themselves. They're coming out and they're telling everybody exactly what they saw. They're like, look, we got no visible. Everyone's like, oh, well, balloons, balloons don't have visible means of propulsion. That's actually not true. All modern uh, spy balloons are equipped with propulsion. That was including the Chinese balloon, by the way. Part of why the explanation for why it blew off course was ludicrous because they actually have motors on board, including our spy balloons. Okay, so let's put that one out the window. Two is in terms of the uh, descriptions of these objects. We've got cylindrical, we've got uh, uh, octagonal, octagon, if you will. Consider also that that broadly conforms with some of the past UFO videos that have been put out from 2017 onwards. We have the gimbal video, we have the triangle UFO, um, we've got pyramid videos um, that have come out. You know, so there's some dispute on the pyramid UFO. But uh, look, the point is, is that we have had irregular shapes, geometric shapes like this that have been well described by pilots who have spotted these things. The Tic Tac as well, also cylindrical. So this is an extraordinary event. And Here's the thing, Crystal. I, I know there's a lot of skepticism from people, and I, rightfully, I mean, I think it should be. There's a lot of talks. Is this a psyop? All of that. I am going to err on the side of incompetence and what I've always erred on with UFOs, which is they're not trying to spin you. They have no idea what's yeah. going on. That's always been my theory. And they, they're yeah. too afraid to tell us. We don't know what's going on up there. Yes. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Expo- so I buy the idea that, yeah. okay, after the Chinese spy balloon situation, and that was like an embarrassing situation yes. with the Biden administration, they recalibrate the radars, and now they're picking up all of these things that it's not that they weren't there before. It's that we just weren't detecting them yes. before. That part I buy, but that still leaves the gigantic question of, okay, well, then what the hell are they? Look, maybe they're all Chinese. Maybe they're all from the same sort of like Chinese spy program. Taiwan is out saying, listen, this happens to us all the time, by the way. China is out this morning now accusing us of flying a bunch of spy balloons over their territory. (laughs) They're like, they've done this to us 10 times, which I don't doubt, by the way. So they're like, why are you so upset when you're doing the same stuff to us over here? Could be all Chinese, but we just don't know. And to your point, I mean, the first one was very obvious. It literally had Chinese characters on it. Like it was, no, it was not in doubt. It was clearly a balloon. Clearly had Chinese characters on it. So why are they having so many, so much trouble describing what these are uh, and explaining to American people what is going on? And there's other little questions too, like why did Trudeau need us to get involved in shooting down the one over their territory? What's that all about? And then uh, lastly, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and bring in our guest. So maybe I'm sure he doesn't have any definitive answers to these either, but uh, he has a lot of insight into what might be going on here. There was an interesting edit in the New York Times regarding the uh, extraterrestrial piece. Mm. So before that press conference uh, with the NORAD commander, when he said, listen, we can't rule anything out, they had this line in, in the New York Times article that said, the incursion seemed to become so common that Biden administration officials have found themselves issuing private assurances that there is no evidence that they involve extraterrestrial activity, but officials also acknowledge privately that the longer they're unable to provide a public explanation for the provenance of the objects, the more speculation grows. So revealing their little piece of inside reporting that even Biden administration officials are having to tell people around them, like, I I really don't think that it's extraterrestrial activity, which is remarkable in and of itself, but also an acknowledgement there that they can't really rule anything out. Now, once the press conference happened and they got that answer from the NORAD commander, they updated with that answer and actually removed that piece about the internal Biden administration sort of deliberations and the way that they've had been having to issue guidance privately to people around them. But 
it is a it is just a remarkable situation. More questions than answers at this point. Well, we have no idea. And here, the other thing is, we've had some cleanup, you know, from some of these officials. They'll come out and they'll be like, "Well, it was it uh, the, it resembled a balloon." It's like, well, uh, okay, well, was it a balloon or not? And once again, none of the debris has been recovered from any of these sites. Which I don't know if you remember this. We had that Chinese balloon in a boat like three hours later. Like yeah. there was video, literally, of like guys on the scene with with high resolution cameras who are capturing U.S. Navy divers bringing the balloon into the boat. So where was sudden, look, Yukon, I get that it's uh, far away. Last time I checked, we created a thing called helicopters. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that we'd be able to just fly to wherever the thing is and pick it up. And then- We have bases there too. Yeah, and then, yes, and what? We have bases all over Alaska. You're really telling me that we can rescue somebody in a a Coast Guard waters where you can't go out on the ice and go grab this thing or what? We don't have drones that can get high resolution footage. The sun doesn't shine up in Alaska. Same in Lake, you know, I was saying, you know, some amateurs who live around that area. I'm not saying you should do this, but if you were to get in your boat and go check it out for us, that would be great. Um, Because I would really, I would really like to know what the hell is going on. No photos, no forensics. Um, All we have is, actually, this is the real disservice uh, that I'll end on before we bring uh, Tom in. All we have are anonymous leaks. Pilots say this. Mm-hmm. Some say that. Oh well, it resembled a balloon, but it didn't. Uh, wasn't definitively a balloon. Uh, officials speculate. Enough. Enough. You cannot have this. I mean, this is one of the most. Again, historically, this has never happened before in American history. Three subsequent shootdowns in less than a week all over U.S. airspace of completely unidentified objects. And where is the president? The guy doesn't give us a press conference. I mean, people are rightfully scared and they're like trying to figure out what the hell is going on. So anyway, we'll end it there. That's all we know at this time. Uh, You know, in terms of speculation, we'll do our best uh, to go and bring you guys much more detail. But let's go ahead and bring in our friend Tom Rogan of the show. He's standing by. Let's put him up here on the screen. Old friend Tom, good to see you. Thanks for joining the show, man. Good to be with you guys. Thanks. Tom, yeah, you've been doing a lot of reporting on this. We read your tweet earlier about the uh, uh, about the recalibration of NORAD and systems. What is your read on this situation right now? What are your sources telling you? Well, I, I think the fundamental point that you guys just hit on there is, number one, the, the government really has caught itself in a web here by basically playing down, along with a lot of people in the media, quite frankly, the idea that uh, some UFOs are, you know, truly unknown. And to your point, Saga, that we still don't have debris recovery officially uh, for these most recent incidents, I think beggars belief based on how the military operates. You know, I, fundamentally mm. that I don't think is true. I think they just don't know, at least in a couple of these cases, what they shot down. Um, and now they've opened you know, the basket of worms by recalibrating the radar systems and their intercepts. So as before, they could say that, you know, some of the more unusual UFOs, let's say, to be generous, are, you know, sensor aberrations, things that, you know, it's the wind, the radar um, is misaligned, etc. It's too small to be a concern. We can just ignore it. Now, because of their changes, because it's political, because of the balloon, they're, they're running up and intercepting all this stuff that's probably been there for a very long time, and they don't know quite how to deal with it. And I think the, the secondary point that's really interesting is the media spin now is, well, there's no evidence it's extraterrestrial. Well, 
obviously. I mean, what, what, what are they expecting there? That there's going to be some communication between these drones and something, you know, in outer space in a right. foreign language. What they're not saying, though, is there's evidence here of unconventional technology and capability. The closest we've got to that, which is the most compelling statement, I think, is the NORAD commander saying, we don't know how it's staying aloft and propulsion, which really roots back to the more extraordinary UFOs anyway. Unconventional yes. technology, quite frankly, means uh, it ain't us and it probably ain't China and Russia in terms of these capabilities. What we really need to see now, I think, um, is what is some of the radar showing with what these objects have been doing before the intercept? Have they been mm. moving in ways that really then gets to, you know, very fast speeds, for example, and anti, um, potentially, you know, anti-gravity style behavior. Excellent point. Yeah, th those are all great points. Um, you know, we've obviously been covering here that uh, preliminary assessment about the unidentified aerial phenomenon, um, all the reportings and sightings, the videos, the, the pilot accounts of, you know, seeing things that they can't really explain that moves in ways that seem to defy physics and technology as we understand it. How do, do these limited descriptions we have of these objects dovetail with some of those earlier sightings and accounts? Well, I, I think that the fundamental point goes back to the, clearly the military knows enough or, or at least elements of the military know enough to know that these are, you know, unconventional. And, and when we look at, um, you know, the reporting in recent years that unfortunately has been kind of limited to limited you know, journalists wanting to do this, um, there are uh, the, the things we would look for in terms of saying that something truly you know, extraordinary is going on with some UFOs, with a very small percentage of UFOs, uh, is, you know, hypersonic uh, instantaneous acceleration, transmedium travel can go underwater without cavitation, which is air bubbles. So the, the submarines will pick them up on sonar. Um, mm. The uh, ability to kind of stop on a dime, um, the ability to incur what we would perceive to be, you know, G-forces raising into the hundreds. What is really notable, though, and, and I think goes back to that stigma point, which is so central to this topic, and, and frankly, I think underlines where there's been such journalistic malpractice and not being willing to turn it, apart from certain folks, such as yourself, um, mm -hmm. is, the, is the point that the military has been able to somehow, I don't want to say buy off, but but blur off um, members of the media, scientific community, by saying, oh, well, that's probably a radar or sonar or satellite sensor mal malfunction, mm. even when it correlates with, you know, trained aerial observers. So the, the point I always make that was made to me, you don't put someone in charge of sonar on an attack or ballistic missile submarine or a satellite system or at the highest end, you know, $140 million fighter jet loaded with weapons if you think they might not be playing with a full deck, right? Ex what if they point. decide to fly? What What if they decide to fly off to New York and do a 9-11 style attack? What if they decide to not alert that there's something coming on on the sonar in the submarine? Like, this is just not, this is ludicrous. The opposite is true. You put yeah, the I, most, you know, cogent people in charge. 
as such, that that is an excellent point. It's like for for people to say, oh, these guys were mistaken. You're saying that some of the most seasoned war fighters through the global war on terror, who have had fl- flown thousands of hours of air missions, who have presumably encountered millions of different objects or whatever, cannot distinguish from their equipment what is an anomaly and what is actually real. It's completely ridiculous. Right. Tom, one thing I think for people at home, uh, I, I've received a lot of pushback on this. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, is this is a PSYOP. What are you guys falling for? Clearly, this is all in preparation for this. There's a belief that the U.S. government is competent enough or smart enough in able to craft this big narrative here in the lead up to something. However, something you and I have discussed privately and often is the truth is, is that they're just terrified to, to say we have no idea what's going on up there. Given your own experience, you're talking with Pentagon intelligence sources and all of that. Which one do you think uh, is the actual scenario that's playing out here? I think there's probably a very small element that has sustained really since the Manhattan Project and the Second World War, which has known that there, you know, is there's some other intelligence operating some of these things. But I think broadly, it, the same principles that the military applied to this issue in the 1940s and 50s sustains today, which is to your point, they truly don't know. They know it's not us, Russia or China, again, in this very small percentile. But when they have the sensor data matched up with pilots, uh, multiple different platforms, multiple pilots, multiple air crews and platforms, sonar operators, for example, something really is compelling going on there. And, and they don't know what to do, right? They have, they, it's an unconventional technology. It behaves in intelligent ways in terms of its counter maneuver sometimes when it's intercepted. Um, and there's a tradition of credible witness accounts, police officers, military, whatever you want, going back decades that talk to something going on. Either there is a mass hallucination that ranges over decades and has some kind of, you know, telepathic communication based on people who've never met describing similar incidents, or, you know, I think the more realistic answer, which is what we are going to, I think, find out in the next few years, simply because of more journalistic and and scientific scrutiny, uh, mm-hmm. that latter point particularly, is, is that really there is something going on here uh, and and the government just doesn't know what to do with it and and you know how do you address that and so the stigma point make it all a little bit silly and hope these things don't you know create issues although if you look at some of the nuclear weapons the portfolio with this there are points i would say of national security concern sure. um, you know you're right the government doesn't know what to do about it Mm-hmm. Um, earlier, Tom, you said you felt pretty confident that this couldn't be Russian or Chinese technology. Why do you feel so certain? Because I think what you know, what most people have sort of gone to outside of a, a extraterrestrial explanation is, yeah, these are probably all likely Chinese. You know, we had the one Chinese spy balloons, probably more Chinese spy balloons or other sort of surveillance aircraft, or maybe they're partnered up with Russia, or maybe Russia has their own capability or some other country. But, you know, most likely, I think fingers point at those two. What makes you so confident that they don't have the technological sophistication to achieve things that, you know, we've been unable to achieve with regards to our own military and surveillance technology? Yeah, I think the first point to note is, you know, that some of these things uh, will turn out to I mean, these most recent ones. Why I say that is the NORAD commander's statement that we don't it's an unconventional propulsion source. The Chinese and Russians still at their next generation, which we have good insight to. And I mean, at least people I've talked to 
uh, we have pretty good insight into how they're developing their next generation of capabilities. So hypersonic glide vehicles, for example, still based on um, flight surface characteristics, propulsion, um, and also the fact that these unconventional things have been essentially described for decades uh, in a way that you would expect or you would you, an adversary or the United States would have deployed these into action to China for Taiwan, for example, Russia, Ukraine, the United States to you know maintain you know global um, you know foreign policy supremacy, whatever whatever you want, they would have delivered. We have no ad intelligence information to suggest that there's been some breakthrough by these countries over a period long period of time. Um, and secondly, I think that the the point to note is that. You know, when you look at things, these most recent incidents that, again, being described as unconventional, how are they operating? Well, you need a launch platform to get them there, right? You, mm -hmm. you need to, you know, submarines can launch these things. But it's very hard for submarines to get that close to the United States. Certainly very hard for them to operate something that would suddenly appear in the middle of the country. Um, you know, and so it just doesn't add up. Again, there are, like with the with the drone element off the West Coast, some of that, although I think more more limited than sometimes people, or it's not everything, certainly, um, there is a Chinese, the PLA will fly them off tankers, uh, drones, advanced drones. But, but the unique ones that show, again, those breakthrough technologies in terms of the data and the witness reports, the Tic Tac in 2004, Dave Fravor, for example, um, that is not China, Russia, and the United States. And because it's not that and no, no other nation, um, it leaves, a, you know, either the mass hallucination effect, which I just don't think is credible, or it leaves something truly unconventional going on. And, and again, I suppose the top line answer to your question is everyone I've talked to, and I'm sure far better journalists that kind of doing the national security beat have talked to, there is no information to suggest the Chinese or Russians or another actor, Elon Musk, the United States, have these <laughs> capabilities in a, in a delivered platform. And again, we're talking decades here. This isn't just yeah. something that we've started. That's yeah. a good point. Let, let's actually, I want to spend time on this just last thing, because this is an important point, which is they're like, what, you think China or Russia doesn't have better technology than us? Here's the difference. Hypersonic missiles is an engineering problem. Conceptually has been known in science for decades. The atomic bomb was also an engineering problem. In the 1930s or something, we knew about the possibility of an atomic weapon. It was just something very difficult to try and create. The SR-71 Blackbird, a technological marvel, but going mock whatever you know was theoretically possible. Moving this way is not known in modern science, has not been known even in the physics laboratory for decades. And that's exactly what, like you'd have to believe that they have an entire an entire like stack of research and science and R&D developed outside of the United States, which has the most sophisticated and best, you know, academic environment in the world. You can just go look at the Nobel Prize that that was developed somehow over the last 50 years and in secret. Am I right, Tom, in describing it that way? Absolutely. And I, I think there's also more data here. You know, we said, I think CNN actually sort of reported on this that some of the sensor systems supposedly with right. the jets may have been interfered with. One thing that's notable about this is you will get and why it has been perhaps easier for the government to say this is, well, just ignore it. Um, when radar, uh, different sensor, um, you know, imagery, infrared, whatever, but, but radar is the particular one I've heard. Will end. Will get close to some of these things. You can get a distorted return that suggests there's some kind of 
effect on the radar going in and out, like a time dilation, whatever it is, something really unconventional. Um, but again, we are talking about, I think, a new type of physics with these most extraordinary small percentage of objects. And, and as you say, you know, we just had the announcement on nuclear fusion, which is nothing compared to yes. what these things seem to exhibit and have seemed to exhibit since, you know, the 1940s. Right. I think it's jet, chat GPT. Uh, it's broken loose. <laughs> it's... <laughs> ChatGPT has got nothing on these guys, okay? Yeah. Um, uh, they Tom, laugh at ChatGPT. It's, uh, it's yeah. great to see you and wonderful to have your expertise. Um, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. We may be calling on you again yeah. here soon. I think so. you'll be a, a fixture on the show. We yeah. appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's our pleasure. All right. All right, guys. So at the same time as whatever is going on in our skies, we also have here down on the ground uh, some 2024 news, especially with regards to the Republican primary. So Nikki Haley, um, who is beloved by donors and doesn't seem to be particularly beloved by the Republican <laughs> base, but she thinks she got a shot at the presidency. Um, she is announcing for president reportedly this week, just days away. And we're already getting a look at what her first campaign ad will be. Let's take a listen. The greatest force for good in human history, and we should never be ashamed to say that. For those that don't have our back, we're taking names. I wear heels. It's not for a fashion statement. It's because if I see something wrong, we're gonna kick them every single time. So at the end there, it says 2-15-23, where will you stand? Um, that's the date of her uh, reported announcement. Sorry, I'll just go ahead and get your reaction to yeah. how do you how Feels do you feel about line that? literally makes me feel <laughs> nauseous. I You're mean, not feeling the, the conservative girl boss it's energy just there? It's crazy. Imagine having <laughs> millions of dollars at your disposal, underwritten by Paul Singer, the hedge fund billionaire. Uh, presumably all of these people who do politics for a living. And this is the crap that you come up with as your initial teaser video. Like, how can you possibly think that that is going to resonate in any way? And really what has come through is, DeSantis aside, because the only formidable challenge, yeah. these people's delusions of grandeur is something that I will never understand. Maybe that's why I'm not a politician. They've but I cannot understand how you possibly could think anybody cares about you remotely enough that you were going to win in the presidency on such a lame ass message yeah. like that. Well, this is yeah. someone who's been living in a bubble for a while. Yeah, and, and this is not, you know, Nikki, that's the case, Mike Pompey. I mean, a lot of these, yes. people, John Bolton, who apparently thinks yeah. he's going to run. A bunch of these people, you know, they live in these little elite circles where everybody treats them like they're, you know, kings and queens. Um, Nikki Haley, for, former UN ambassador. And uh, then you're in a group of, of uh, donors who love you and tell you how you're the next big thing. And, oh, it's it's time for a woman and a woman of color in the Republican Party. And, you know, they they bought the hype. They believed their own hype. They drank their own Kool-Aid, however you want to ultimately put it. Um, so anyway, she's going to jump into the race here. I'm just going to, Kyle came up with this lab, but I think it's so accurate. She's basically the Kamala Harris of the Republican Party. Wildly overrated. I mean, you can clip out these little, the, the high heel moment or whatever she has there. But if you actually listen to this woman give a speech, <laughs> you're going to get a lot of Kamala Harris vibes ultimately. So this is someone the donor class loves, has loved for quite a while has nothing at the core other than like ambition and desire to climb the ladder. And so that's that's starting this week. So good luck to Nikki Haley. 
At the same time, we have new reporting from the New York Times about the uh, Trump-DeSantis feud and how that is developing and simmering. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. From the Times, the headline here is DeSantis's challenge when and how to counterattack Trump as the former president lobs insults and calls him Ron DeSanctimonious. Governor Ron DeSantis is carefully avoiding conflict, but if he runs for president as expected, a clash is inevitable. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the long and short of this is something that we've been tracking here closely, which is that it's a tricky maneuver that DeSantis is going to have to pull off here because if you don't engage, then you look weak and you allow Trump to take all these pot shots at you, which he has been, and he's been ramping up. He shared the thing last week, like claiming that Ron DeSantis is a groomer. So if you don't respond, you look extremely weak. But if you try to get down in the mud with him, like Republicans, you know, periodically did, especially during the 2016 primary, that has never worked out for literally anyone on the Republican side. Um, at the same time, they also have some reporting about the way that Trump is talking about him privately. I will read this quote from the New York Times. Since November, despite the criticism he faced at the time, Mr. Trump has periodically hit out at his potential rival, albeit to a relatively small audience. He posted his most recent innuendo about the governor on True Social, where he has just under 5 million followers. And he has insulted Mr. DeSantis in casual conversations, describing him as, quote, Meatball Ron, an apparent dig at his appearance, or shut down Ron, a reference to restrictions the governor put in place at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, one thing you got to say about Trump, he is never worried about like being a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. I mean, Trump is not a svelte man. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he doesn't cut a lean uh, picture at this point in his life, but still not afraid to go ahead and throw a jab at Ron, uh, Ron DeSantis. The thing is and, about Trump, he's been fat for decades now, whereas DeSantis actually was skinny not that long ago and then became unseemly fat <laughs> while he was governor. And that was That's the problem. Uh, he took some weight off. Look, I mean, I guess I'll, I sympathize. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, send Ron DeSantis yeah. on this one. A rare moment. No, okay, some people struggle with their weight yes. and clearly this is like a battle that he has yeah, ongoing. Sure, it's, yeah. it's fine. It's All relatable. Right. It's very I, relatable. It is relatable. That said, there is uh, about, it is accurate. There is something it about is Trump, though. Yeah. I don't know. How tall is DeSantis? DeSantis, I think he might be 6'1". Uh, Trump here, is tall, and for yeah. some reason, even though he is more overweight than Ron DeSantis, he's one right. of those people who can, like, oh my the God, way he wears this. five 5'9". See, that's wow. see short, when you're short, short and you struggle with that, it makes it hard. It makes it harder. But, yeah, Trump, for some reason... Because he's tall and like the way he wears his suits and those like long ass ties. Yes. For some reason, Trump is he, a big dude. Yeah, yeah he I, just I doesn't come. I guess he's got the big frame and like, you know, it's just able to carry it. I think Trump is Listen, around. I got six, nothing against a big boy. That's not yeah. my issue with he's Trump. He's like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, <laughs> uh, I think. Yeah, he's big. And he has, he's big in stature. I remember seeing. I remember. I just remember that whenever uh, I met him. DeSantis, never met him. But, you know, in terms of uh, the nickname, I think it is certainly going to stick. And look, what I was talking about with delusions of grandeur, let's put this up there on the screen. Tim the Scott. One is now raising presidential buzz with super PAC hires. And actually, just this morning, Crystal, it broke in the Wall Street Journal. It says Tim Scott prepares a presidential wow. run. I mean, wow. these people are... They are so delusional. Taking steps, running for president, people familiar with this plan said, looking to wrest the party mantle from former President Trump. Luck. Yeah, good luck with that, Tim good Scott. Uh, I'm sure that you are exactly the person that people are turning to. I mean, this uh, this has Scott Walker vibes written mm. all over it.
Mm. was trying to sign. Uh, so I think Nikki is the Tim Pawlenty of the race. Uh, <laughs> Tim Scott is the Scott Walker of the race. Both of these people, as you know, are going to have ungodly amounts of money uh, underwriting mm-hmm. their campaign from donors who want to move on from Trump. DeSantis is the only, he's kind of the Ted Cruz figure. He's the only credible, actual challenge to Trump. But as with Cruz, you know, Cruz, at the end of the day, was not able to unseat Trump because he did not have the capability to unite the party behind him in an actual head-to-head matchup. He always had Rubio in the race or he had uh, John Kasich in the race. And then with the delegate math, Trump would just get 40, sometimes 50, especially as the race continued to go on and he wins the nomination. Trump actually comes in with even more of the benefit on his side in a non-head-to-head matchup with such a consolidated part of the base that's behind him. And just as we predicted, you know, you always can never, these people are never gonna do what is in uh, that is in the party's best interest. Yeah. They're egomaniacal narcissists. In a lot of ways, the Democrats are more willing to fall in line, you know, with yeah, Klobuchar and Buttigieg bowing to President Obama. Elizabeth, They're like, oh yeah, we're out. Yeah, Elizabeth um, Warren staying right, in when, right. you know, it would have been helpful if she got out. Exactly. Every single person played their part. No, yeah. it's true. The Republicans, I mean, ever since 2016, really have had less control over their candidate field and over the party uh, from like sort of the top down. And maybe it's been that way for a while. I think Republicans weirdly are more responsive to their base for whatever reason than the Democratic Party is. It's just Um, a weak party leadership. And the Democratic Party exerts stronger control which I think is a negative thing, Mm -hmm. by the way, but that's, I believe, an accurate description of the two parties. And yeah, the irony here is all of these people who have the view, okay, it's time to move on from Trump, by all of them jumping into the race, they're helping to ensure that the party will not be moving on from Trump. Now, personally, I think even if it was head-to-head Trump versus DeSantis, I still think that's a tough road for DeSantis. The base of the party still loves Donald Trump. And as we've said a million times, it's one thing to be kind of out there, you know, doing your thing as governor, just weighing in occasionally to say, hey, look at the scoreboard, or we did well in Florida. It's another thing to be on a debate stage with this guy and have him telling you you're, you know, meatball Ron and <laughs> shut down Ron and Ron to sanctimonious and you're a groomer and whatever straight to your face. When you are in that situation, sit, t- trying to take the high road and just make a kind of offhand comment about, oh, check the scoreboard, it's not going to be sufficient. You're going to look weak in that situation if you don't have a more forceful response. It's a very challenging situation ultimately for them to be able to navigate. And oh, by the way, even if Ron DeSantis did win the nomination, then you have the prospect of, is Trump going to endorse him? Is Trump going to actually run third party? I think it's more likely he would just, you know, running third parties like a lot of work and requires organization, et cetera. I think it's more likely he would just take shots and not be a good, good soldier and, you know, deplete sort of some of the energy right. among the Republican base. And then that's, if you lose even a little bit of ground with your own people, then that's going to be devastating in the general election. So. I, I don't see a chance in hell, uh, especially in a divided field. Now, look, I could be totally wrong and there's a lot of crazy stuff that could happen. It's just, look, with DeSantis, as you, you know, the idea of Trump telling that story about this guy, like interrupting him, he, like, he begged with tears in his eyes for my endorsement. And you can see DeSantis tenses up. He gets uncomfortable in those press conferences. Yes. My friend Henry Rogers asked him about it and he was like, look, look, this is a press thing. He like pivots to where he's comfortable, attacking the media. He pivots to, I'm moving on. You know, look at the scoreboard actually was the best moment. And it's because he wasn't defensive. It was offensive. Well, and he had planned this out. Yeah. And obviously that was a planned line, it's, which is a good line. It's yeah. very different 
you know, having yeah. a plan line and being able to deliver it is very different from having to respond in real time. And we did get a taste of that. I mean, obviously, he won for governor quite easily. But yes. there was uh, there were moments in his uh, gubernatorial debates where, you know, he got asked like, oh, so you're just you're are you going to serve for the full four years? And he didn't have a prepared response. And he just kind of awkwardly stared into the camera and looked very flat footed and then right. delivered one of these sort of like canned prepared lines. So. We'll see how it all goes. Listen, we're like facing an alien invasion right now, so I don't put anything as off the table whatsoever. <laughs> but all of this cast of characters deluding themselves into thinking that they have a shot and going ahead and pre preparing their campaigns and having money behind them too, by the way. They're not just out there on a limb by themselves. They've got billionaire backing. This is, uh, you know, this is the, the greatest gift you could possibly yeah. give to Donald Trump. You got to admit that for funny's sake, the idea of aliens coming down on the first meeting they meet is Trump. That's pretty funny. Yeah, like, you, got, you gotta say that that would be a huge, he'd be like, they were like, really? Like, you're the leader of people? Okay, you're the most powerful person on We live on in the most surreal yeah. timeline that could possibly Not be. saying it's aliens, but I certainly hope they are. Okay, <laughs> let's go ahead and move on to Ukraine. Um, so we had a fascinating moment here in Washington. Uh, Lula, the president of Brazil, newly elected, visiting DC, visiting allies, uh, sat for an interview actually with CNN's Christiane Amanpour, uh, where she pressed him over Ukraine, and he refused to bow to say that he would send arms to Ukraine, instead pressing for negotiation. Extraordinary, actually, for any major power um, in the global south, or really anywhere, uh, to talk this way. Let's take a listen to what he said. It looks like you're going to come up against President Biden on a key defense of the United States of democracy around the world, and that is Ukraine. You do not believe, I don't think, in the Western support for Ukraine's defense, and you have said it many times. Um, why not? I mean, some people have asked, in fact, an article, why is Lula so committed to democracy at home and not abroad? Well, I am highly committed with democracy in any part of the planet Earth. What I believe is that in the case of Ukraine and Russia, it is necessary to have someone talking about peace. It's necessary that we should build up interlocutors to talk with the different parties that are in confrontation. That's my thesis. We need to find interlocutors that could sit with President Putin and show to him the mistake that he made to invade the territorial integrity of the Ukrainian territory, and we have to show to Ukraine that they have to talk more so that we can avoid this war. We have to stop the war. And so why I'm going to talk with President Biden, I don't know what he's going to say to me, but I, what I want to say to him is the following. It is necessary to build a set of countries to negotiate peace. And he asked and he you to send Brazil. his leopards to Ukraine, and you said no. No, no it's not the tanks. It was ammunition. Okay, or ammunition. It was, I didn't want to send, because if if I send to am the ammunition, I would join the war. If I send the ammunition from Brazil, the ammunition that you're asking for. But you just agreed uh, that it was defense. This will take us to war. I don't want to go join the war. I want to end with the war. I don't want to join the war. I want to end with the war. Ah, uh, that was an extraordinary moment there. I mean, you have not heard that from a major leader. Uh, let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. So actually, while he was here in Washington, President Biden pressed him heavily to actually send ammunition to Ukraine, and he refused President Biden to his face, saying that that was not what's going to happen. He condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but he suggested that Zelensky, share, uh, Zelensky and NATO at least, quote, share some blame for the war, and he's refusing to sell weapons to Ukraine to try and maintain neutrality in the conflict. 
conflict. So he says, quote, we need to find interlocutors who can sit with President Putin to show him the mistake he made to invade Ukraine's territory. We have to show Ukraine that they need to talk more so we can end this war. So you haven't heard this uh, from anybody. I think the craziest part was when he said, I don't want to join this war. I want to end this war and talking about the conditions necessary to uh, to push uh, towards a negotiation. Now, look, yeah. obviously, Brazil, they're probably not going to turn the conflict either way. But, you know, it represents millions and millions of people, one of the biggest powers in all of Latin America. So what his position is on this could be a leading indicator, uh, at least from their position and some room for dissent in kind of the global um, environment. And it would also be possible President Putin sees this this could be a major opening right now as to Lula's own role in perhaps bringing an end to this. Yeah, I mean, that's clearly his yeah. view is he wants to maintain somewhat of a neutral stance so that he could be trusted as a figure to be involved in potential negotiations to bring this thing to an end. And, you know, I'm doing my monologue today on uh, an extraordinary interview from the former Israeli prime minister indicating, again, something we already had hints of, but confirming that early in this process, there was a potential peace deal that was coming to together. No guarantees. No one's saying it was certain. But according to the Israeli prime minister, there was like a 50-50 shot. And the U.S. and NATO, but led by the U.S., actively said, we don't want the deal. We want the war. So Lula's perspective here that he's offering, where he's talking about he's critical of Biden, and he has been before uh, in a, a Time magazine interview where he was saying, listen, before this war started, he could have flown to Moscow. He could have engaged war. Instead, they sort of laughed off uh, Putin's proposals and his red lines. And of course, you know, with regards to NATO, ignored them for decades. This is a view that is actually widespread outside of the U.S. and outside of Western media. It's just extremely rare that a U.S. audience actually hears another way of looking at this conflict and another way of looking at the history and how we got there and exactly who is to blame and how much. Now, obviously, as we have said a million times here, Russia is to blame for the invasion, but to ignore all of the context of how we got here and to just paint Putin as this like madman who can't be reasoned with means that, of course, you're not going to support diplomatic negotiations. At the same time, uh, Rand Corporation, which is largely funded by the Pentagon, is out saying, the most likely outcome here is not that Russia will win or Ukraine will win, but that we will have a stalemate and that it is a disaster if we end up in a long war. It's very difficult, though, given how long this has already gone on and the level of atrocities that have been committed to now get back to the peace table and the negotiating table and be able to come up with the type of deal that was coming together in the early days. So, you know, I really commend Lula for, for sticking to his guns here, for not mincing words for laying out exactly how he sees this conflict. And just to give you, you know, a sense of this guy and how different the way that he talks about this conflict is from anything that you hear in the U.S. press, in that Time magazine article, he was talking about Zelensky and he said, listen, you're encouraging this guy. And then he thinks he's the cherry on your cake. We should be having a serious conversation. Okay, you were a nice comedian, but let us not make war for you to show up on TV. He then went on to be very critical of Putin as well. So this is someone who, 
has been unafraid of speaking a very different way about this conflict than anything you're going to hear anywhere else. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to the next part here about the actual offensive. And this will be, this really is the testing ground of what a quote-unquote stalemate might even look like and how Russia has, if at all, regrouped, what their power will look like. Let's put this up there on the screen. Russian offensive in Ukraine appearing to begin some of the preliminary movements. So we've had operations and treat movements around eastern Ukraine that have sharply uh, increased sharply in the last couple of months as we move away from the more muddier season and the ground becomes easier to, uh, to use. So here's what they say. Um, they believe that the pace of Moscow operations over the past week has accelerated specifically in western Luhansk, citing a lot of new skirmishes that are happening along the front line with marginal advances in that region. So it now appears to be committing a much more of its forces that were held in reserve ever since that highly controversial military draft that happened last fall. And what the actual push on the line will look like remains unclear. So there's 30 different settlements all across eastern Ukraine, which have come under intense fire over the last couple of months. Specifically, also, we remember Bakhmut, which President uh, Zelensky visited here, visited immediately before visiting the United States. What they say is that the the all-out multi-front assault is very unlikely to occur at the same moment. Instead, they will likely prioritize a major advance aimed at seizing the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. Present indicators suggest that Moscow is planning to launch this offensive sometime in late February and in mid-March. So the traditional skirmishes, getting the intelligence, getting the men ready, uh, moving uh, material and supplies all up to the front line, appear to be coming now. This is also going to be a big test for the Ukrainians. Ukrainians had that stunning spring offensive where they took back a tremendous amount of territory relative to what was expected of them. Now we've been pumping them full of billions of dollars. We've got new weapon systems that are on the ground there. The tanks and all that are not operational, as I believe, because they still need to be trained on. But nonetheless, you know, they've been able to regroup. They've been pounded um, from Russian air power, but they've got now to test whether they can keep some of the areas that they withhold and can they withstand against the actual Russian offensive. Whether it turns into a stalemate or not is all going to be proven probably in the next two or three months or so of probably terrible fighting, which is really, you know, that's the saddest part. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, uh, the general understanding is that Russia's goal in this new offensive would be to take back the parts of the Donbass region that they had Mm -hmm. lost Ukraine in particular in that spring offensive. You know, the tanks haven't arrived yet. There's a reason why Zelensky has been flying around, you know, really putting uh, putting the screws to leaders in the West to provide fighter jets and other capabilities because they know that ultimately, I mean, the fundamental balance in this conflict remains what it was on day one, even as Russia has dramatically underperformed, which is Russia just has way more men that they can ultimately throw at this thing if they want, way more munitions, way more of an industrial base. And so, you know, Zelensky and Ukraine are wholly dependent on the West providing uh, the resources and material that they need in order to be able to maintain their position or push forward. But um, again, you know, the most likely outcome here isn't that Ukraine is able to achieve total victory and isn't that Russia is able to achieve total victory. It's a brutal, bloody 
stalemate that could go on endlessly if there isn't some attempt at a diplomatic resolution. Yeah, uh, that's really where things appear to stand right now. We got some maps we can put up on the screen there. People are interested, and it just shows what we were talking about, those who are watching, uh, where the actual front line is in the Donbass and where some of the expected uh, war will take place. So it's going to be a big, big testing ground for the Ukrainian forces and for the Russian forces, frankly, because if they crumble or if this doesn't uh, is not uh, it's not victorious, even without any of the advanced weapons that we have provided to Ukraine, then Russia is in some serious trouble in the years to come. And it would only really mean that they're going to have to escalate even more, perhaps another draft, a vicious cycle there. So either side has got a lot to lose based on what the outcome is here. Yes, indeed. All right. There is no way for me to make a segue to our next <laughs> segment eloquently, but yes. we wanted to give you a little update on update. some continued that? Mr. Beast derangement syndrome. Oh my God. Um, as we covered here previously, uh, Mr. Beast put out a video, gigantic YouTube star for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you do. I mean, he's actually the top YouTube creator in the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, so very famous and successful guy. He, he's known for these sort of acts of uh, random charity and, and giveaways. And one of his most recent videos he uh, paid for a thousand people to have their blindness treated so that they you know, were no longer visually impaired and able to see again. He went into the data about how many people around the world suffer from curable blindness. And he was you know, with people in the United States where it's disgusting that they wouldn't have access to this, to this surgery without Mr. Beast coming in and paying for it. So, you know, most normal people, in fact, I would say all normal people look at this and go, that's good that he did That's that. That's great. That's great. A thousand people who wanted to see can see now. That's cool. All right, let's move on. But um, that hasn't stopped some people from being deeply offended by the fact that, you know, Mr. Beast took this approach. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is from TechCrunch. Headline here, Mr. Beast's blindness video puts systemic ableism on display. Um, let me read you a little bit from this piece. Recently, megastar creator Mr. Beast posted a video to his YouTube in which he spotlights numerous blind and visually impaired people who have undergone a surgical procedure that, quote, cures their blindness. As of this writing, the video has been viewed more than 76 million times, and the responses have been visceral in both praise and contempt. For his part, Mr. Beast has taken to Twitter to publicly bemoan the fact that so many are so angry at him for putting on what amounts to a publicity stunt under the guise of selfless charity. The truth is straightforward. The video was more ableist than altruistic. His reasoning that he lays out in this article, he says, in the broadest lens, the biggest problem with wanting to cure blindness is that it reinforces a moral superiority of sorts by those without disabilities over those who are disabled, mm. although not confronted nearly as often as racism and sexism, systemic ableism is pervasive throughout all parts of society. The fact of the matter is that the majority of abled people view disability as a failure of the human condition. As such, people with disabilities should be mourned and pitied. More pointedly, as Mr. B stated in his video's thumbnail, disabilities should be eradicated or cured. Okay, so the argument here is that Rather than, you know, people getting help if they want it to, you right. know, recover their vision. Many of these people had been, you know, had right. had perfect vision and then had become visually impaired. They wanted this surgery. They wanted to be able to see again. It's not like Mr. Beast was like holding people down right. who were like, no, I'm good. I actually have like embraced my my um, situation and my disability and I'm happy, which if you if that's you, God, more power to you. That's beautiful. 
But these are people who wanted to be able to see. So it's not like he was like holding them down and forcing them to cure their disability in a way that they didn't want. It's like the Jack Nicholson meme <laughs> of having your, your eye, what is that movie? One Flew Out of the, whatever. I'm too, I'm too young for that. Uh, anyway, the Jack Nicholson meme of having his eyes like forced open and Mr. Beast is there like <laughs> curing their blindness. No, like this is outrageous. Of course, Taylor Lorenz, by the way, got in on the action saying, uh, she, Clockwork Orange, there it is. Thank you, producer Griffin, <laughs> in my ear. Um, so what do, they, what do we learn from this? Which is that these people, Somehow, I don't know why, these people despise someone being successful by helping people by curing their blindness. I will never understand it. Taylor Lorenz, you know, tweeting this out as if it's some like uh, incredible, you know, think piece that we're supposed to cherish this other side of perspective. What it, look, if he was saying, I can't even believe that people live this way, you know, denigrating them or something. Okay, then I think that's a totally different case. And right. doing it not even really in an altruistic way, but doing it in a way where uh, he's clearly doing it for clout or something like that, that'd be also another uh, way of doing it. This, by all accounts, I mean, watch the video, people. I really, people are like, it's it's emotional. Like, people are crying. Their families are happy. He was getting some of the money. They were like breaking down in, in joy and tears. And they were, I mean, it's a, it's a tough one to watch. And as you watch, uh, said in your monologue, the point is, is that should, such systems shouldn't even exist. Right. Right? It's like, how many more millions are afflicted by this? And what could we do as a society to make sure that it doesn't happen anymore? All right, that's a perfect takeaway, one of which he can came away with. At first, you know, we were thinking, these are just fringe, strange characters. But no, I mean, this is a mainstream, look, for people who don't know, TechCrunch is a highly influential publication in Silicon Valley. Like this is as establishment as it gets for a lot of people in the tech industry. And I, I'm mystified as to what exactly even compels somebody like Taylor or someone like this guy, Stephen uh, Aquino, by the way, Aquino, he's uh, locked his Twitter account, by the way, because oh, really? of, all, of, the, of uh, all that criticism that was happening yeah. this way. And Stephen, it's psychotic. Stephen yeah. himself, which he talks about right. in the piece, has a number of disabilities. And in his view, okay, I, he embraces his disabilities. He doesn't want to, you know, be quote unquote cured mm -hmm. for them or, over, or like, you know, have them treated or whatever because he feels like they've made him who he is. So that's the way that he's approaching. That's fine. Beautiful. Wonderful. But why are you, he says he's not judging these people who wanted to have their uh, vision treated and, mm -hmm. and re restored. But that's kind of the, the subtext here is that if you have a disability, and you would prefer to recover your vision or be able to see for the first time, then that's sort of a failing on your part. So he projects a lot of like, oh, able-bodied people, they are have a moral superiority over people with disabilities, which doesn't come out in this Mr. Beast video whatsoever. But the subtext of this piece is some moral superiority over people with disabilities who choose to embrace those disabilities versus those who choose to have them treated. That's the real moral superiority that I see coming through in this piece. So there's a lot going on there, but ultimately, Mr. Beast did nothing wrong. That's yeah, my opinion. He didn't do a damn thing wrong. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I actually think it's important that people, because, you know, it's not like people in the mainstream press are speaking out and saying that Taylor is psychotic or Stephen Aquino is psychotic for going after Mr. Beast like that. They're mostly, they'll roll their eyes in private, but people need to come out and be like, hey, what are you talking about? Yeah. You're crazy. You're actually insane if you have this perspective. So anyway, I think we should stand up for the guy. I, I really do 
feel bad because, you know, of all, this is probably the best video he's arguably ever done, Squid Game even, just because it helped so many people. It's not just some individual person. And it actually raised a real, I think for a lot of younger people who watch this, were like, hey, I had no idea that this even existed. Yes. That's a great thing yes. to bring to people. Most of yeah. Mr., look, I'm not a big Mr. Beast yeah. consumer, but I've watched a number of his videos yeah. and, you know, most of them are not political at all. Oh. It's There's no underlying political message, whatever. This one, there actually was. I mean, you talked about the statistics, the number of mm -hmm. people who had their vision restored for one of this simple 10-minute surgery. And so, you know, on the contrary, it just it wasn't just like, you know, a neutral here. The fact that you're raising awareness about how morally bankrupt this disgusting healthcare system, for-profit healthcare system that we have here, and the failings, that, you know, around the world as well, that you're raising awareness about that. That's that's a positive thing. That's a great thing. That's reaching people who otherwise may not have really thought that through that are just, you know, Mr. Beast consumers and they're not deeply political. So anyway, that's my view on it. There you go. All right, Tiger, what are you looking at? Well, we've been talking a lot here in recent weeks about childhood obesity and the role, if any, that the government can play in shaping it. Philosophically, it's actually a very difficult question. Individually, you can zoom in on parents, you can blame them for an obese kid. But what if the parents themselves are obese and then have been since children? What if they can't afford to eat healthier? Or what if they honestly just don't know anything about nutrition? To me, I like to focus in on those questions. Cost, information, policy. I'm not and would never claim that the US government can't solve childhood obesity. But something I am claiming is that an aggressive effort on the part of state, local governments with the feds could meaningfully affect it. I mean, just consider this. A 10% drop in childhood obesity means literally millions of children will not be afflicted with a lifelong problem. The numbers are staggering considering just how many kids and adults in the US are on track for terrible health over the course of their entire lives. That's why I started paying attention in the last few days to a really interesting story out of New Mexico, where traditional partisan blinders were not on display. Instead, we had a novel incident, a lawmaker who just kind of wanted to help children, and he was crushed by a big soda lobby. So New Mexico State Senator Greg Schmides, he's a Republican, but probably more importantly for this story, also a practicing surgeon, introduced a bill to prohibit the sale of soda in New Mexico public schools from pre-K to high school. Importantly, his bill would only apply to school hours. It had exceptions for after-school events like concession sales. Here, too, it's also worth pausing. We are not talking about adults, like Michael Bloomberg's proposed ban from a few years ago. I am of the opinion adults can make choices for themselves. If they want to be obese and they want to drink 60 ounces of soda, be my guest. I myself drink a 7-Eleven Big Gulp of diet soda once a week. Mm -hmm. I am not perfect. Every time I drink it, I know it's not good for me. I like it. What can I say? But there's a big difference than an adult with a fully formed brain, well aware of the trade-offs being made with soda, and a child whose dopamine center is being hijacked by sugar. The discussion at the very least, I think, is important, and we need to develop parameters about children and protecting them in an environment where the state, by definition, is responsible for their well-being. Perhaps even more important than the idea than the bill. It's how viciously it was fought by Big Soda. According to the senator, after he introduced his bill, Coca-Cola flew six executives on a private jet immediately to New Mexico to kill the bill. They understood perfectly that if you let even a smaller population state like New Mexico ban soda, that the headlines would be devastating and that all other states might start asking questions. In fact, it's not just Coca-Cola that got in on the action. After the bill was successfully killed, you had PepsiCo executives doing backflips in the local press. Hmm. New Mexico local media quoted an executive who told them, quote, the bill is not needed. Why? Because, quote, current USDA regulations already limit beverage calories in schools are in place and followed by schools in New Mexico. Hmm. That actually gives away whole game. 
Right now, while the USDA does discourage the sale of caffeinated beverages in schools, it still allows it. In fact, the regulations say, quote, lower calorie beverages with up to 40 calories per eight ounces or 60 calories per 12 ounces may be sold in up to 12 ounce portions. As the Senator said in his hearing, quote, who are you going to trust more, beverage companies or our committee to care for our children? Despite his plea, senators killed the bill. Why? Because they expressed concern that it would hurt sports and community programs, despite the explicit carve-out in the bill for those very activities. You want to tell me with a straight face that the big soda lobby didn't have anything to do with destroying that bill or rigging those USDA regulations? Hmm. Look, are there bigger fish to fry when it comes to childhood obesity? Absolutely. But as I've laid out here before, the sugar industry has already rigged the system with the FDA where you can have a no, quote, healthy food label on your food and you can't discriminate against the amount of sugar in a label product. Sugar consumption over the course of our lives has skyrocketed, especially in the last 50 years. It is unquestionably a major contributor to childhood obesity. Simply, it's palatable. Unfortunately, in reverse, a similar partisan fight is actually playing out in the state of New York. Mayor Eric Adams, who I have major disagreements in his pushing of vegan diets and meatless food, is trying to restrict the sale of chocolate milk in school. In response, Representative Elise Stefanik, who Trump has actually touted as potential successor for defending him on TV, introduced a bill, and I'm not joking, to require chocolate milk in all schools across the country. Her statement reads, quote, Mayor Adams fails to understand that delicious flavored milk is how many of our kids access the essential nutrients in dairy for their development, and taking options away from children is not the answer. Hmm. Who wants to ask the Congresswoman why exactly chocolate milk is delicious? It's because of the sugar in it. In fact, the average school chocolate milk in the United States has a full 12 grams of added sugar. Sure, it is not as bad as a full sugar soda, but this is a game of inches, literally, in terms of restricting weight bans. I want to reiterate again, if you are an adult, go for it. But schools, we have a say. We should not let partisan blinders push us away from talking about what we give kids while they're at school. More so, we cannot let big moneyed interests buy off representatives to quash even the slightest attempts at getting kids slightly healthier. This entire episode is a very small glimpse into what we're all up against, and I hope everybody is paying attention because it will only get worse in the years to come. Yeah, the chocolate milk thing uh, is- I'm really nuts. glad you got that in. To be fair, I mean, yeah. look, with Eric Adams, he's trying to require plant-based milk, and, and by the way, there's all kinds of problems with plant-based milk, even if you go in the production. So I'm not defending the guy on its merits, but if you're trying to have a baseline conversation of like, okay, should we have healthier milk in school or not? Yeah. Chocolate milk is not in that discussion. And she wants to require, she's like, we should give our kids options. Really? You should give kids options? They're like five years old. You want, what do you think they're going to pick? Yeah, they're going to pick the sugary one. Obviously, yeah. they're going to pick the sugary yeah. one. Yeah, it makes me think back to the whole culture war about Michelle Obama oh, during yeah. the Obama administration because this was one of her big, like childhood nutrition and like exercise and fitness for kids, whatever. That was like her thing that she really focused on as first lady. And there was this whole culture war freak out. I remember over on Fox News about mm. like, You're, you'll take our school lunch cookies from our right. cold, dead 
hands, etc. And at the time, I just thought it was like sort of general Obama derangement. That was certainly a part of it. But now I look at it a lot differently of the sort of industry interests behind the scenes that also had, you know, a, a deep vested financial interest in keeping things exactly as they were. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the soda thing, though, I mean, it's one of those things where nobody would pay attention to this. I happen to come across it because Callie Means uh, flagged it for me. But you got this like, look, he's a New Mexico state senator. Nobody's paying attention. to this. Right. Guy. He's just a surgeon. He's like, this is crazy. We shouldn't have. So and then there I mean, I don't know how you feel about this. Like, I don't think it's the end of the world. You don't sell soda at a freaking football ball game, but whatever. All right. Yeah. So they're like, oh, this might hurt concession sales. It's like, all right, fine. We'll fund them for the thing. Although that probably shouldn't be the way that we fund our football teams, whatever. So he carves out all of that. They still kill it based upon uh, after, uh, based upon those fake concerns after the lobbyists Coca-Cola fly over there. And if you think they weren't doling out money of some kind yeah. in some way, you're crazy. They've and then got, they kill this on the state legislature level. They've got vending machines in my kid's elementary school. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. And they're nuts. constantly asking, yeah. can I yeah. bring a dollar for the van? I'm like, right. no. Right. And there's nothing but crap in those things. Right. Like, why is there a vending machine in an elementary school whatsoever? And this isn't a school where they're like hosting football games mm-hmm. or whatever. There's no reason for them to be there. Look, if you put them in the teacher's lounge and, you know, and the adults in the school, okay, fine. But to have access for five and six-year-olds to be able to, like, you know, get their soda or their cookies or whatever their fixes is crazy. That's a great – and here's the thing. If you're a parent you want to give your kid a Coke, that's your right. You do, do what you want. Yeah. But you can't – what does a child know about what's in a damn vending machine? They're going to go for the sugary thing. Of course. Every time. I can't even believe you're allowed to sell this stuff. I'm starting to lose my mind. Well, and you said, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, big soda is – I think as damaging to health, perhaps more than big tobacco ever was. And there needs to be the same level of scrutiny and acknowledgement of the way that they've rigged the rules to their benefit because it it has devastating health consequences for people for their entire lives. Absolutely. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, we're now getting the clearest picture to date of the early days of Russia's war in Ukraine, including Putin's thinking, the concessions that both he and Zelensky were actually open to, and critically, the way that NATO led by the U.S., made a strategic choice to kill a budding peace deal that could have brought a ceasefire mere weeks into this horrific conflict. In an explosive interview, former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett goes into great depth about his role in attempting to achieve a negotiated settlement a week and a half into this war. Listening to this interview is to come face-to-face with just how much we have been lied to and propagandized by the Western press. Every detail about this conflict has been obscured and manipulated from what the war is even about to what our role in it actually is. Now, some of you might have seen excerpts from this interview already. It occurred over a week ago now, but it is five hours long, and I wanted to take some time to actually go through it thoroughly before I broke it all down for you. Also, the interview's in Hebrew. I'm going to read a bit of the English translation uh, and put it the video up on the screen so you can just get a vibe of what it looks like. Right now, we're dropping into the interview after former PM Bennett has already described the outlines of the deal and his role in the negotiations when he explains why this diplomacy all came up empty-handed. So He says, I'm just the mediator, but I turn to America in this regard. I don't do as I please. Anything I did was coordinated down to the last detail with the U.S., Germany, and France. The interviewer then asked him, so they blocked it? And he replies, basically, yes, they blocked it. And I thought they were wrong. In retrospect, it's too soon to know. So in that clip, Bennett there says unequivocally that NATO, led by the U.S., blocked a budding peace deal. At another point, Bennett claim says, quote, I have one claim. 
I claim there was a good chance of reaching a ceasefire. The interviewer then queries whether Bennett means they could have achieved a ceasefire had the U.S. not curbed it, and Bennett nods yes in confirmation. Think of how explosive this revelation is. If there was an ounce of credibility in the Western press, this would be bombshell news. It reveals a portrait of the war and our role in it that is wildly out of step with the narrative that the U.S. public has been fed in which we are solely supporting Ukraine's ambitions, as Biden says nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, and in which our only choices are to let Ukrainians be slaughtered or ship tanks and probably fighter jets and court war with a nuclear-armed superpower. In reality, Ukraine, led by Zelensky, wanted a deal early in this conflict and was willing to make some hard compromises to get there. And far from the imperialist madman presented in the U.S. press, Putin was also seemingly willing to make significant compromises to achieve a ceasefire. Bennett says it was his impression that both of these men wanted a ceasefire at that point. Now, most of the press simply ignored these revelations, which honestly was probably the safest choice because the attempt to spin it was hilariously flailing. This attempt to spin from Insider claims that actually the Hebrew was translated incorrectly. And when Bennett says, quote, they blocked it, the correct translation should have been, quote, they stopped it. Oh, well, if the U.S. stopped the peace negotiations, that's totally different than if they blocked the peace negotiations. Come on, people. They also tried to trot it down, of course, their tried and true tactic for shutting down debate by smearing anyone who amplified this interview and the explosive revelations contained therein as a Russian propagandist. But whether the proper Hebrew to English translation is blocked or stopped, this is not the first indication we've gotten that the U.S. killed an emerging deal and chose war over the possibility, not a certainty, but the possibility of negotiated peace. Bennett, for what it's worth, put that possibility of achieving a settlement in those early days at a 50-50 chance. Not a guarantee, but damn, it was worth a shot. Now, you'll recall that Ukrainian press reported that then-UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson flew to Kyiv early in the conflict to personally inform Zelensky we did not want a deal. We also had former U.S. National Security Council official Fiona Hill writing about the outlines of that peace deal for foreign affairs, saying, quote, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appeared to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Russia would withdraw to its position on February 23 when it controlled part of the Donbass region and all of Crimea. And in exchange, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and increase, instead receive security guarantees from a number of countries. So, couple those reports with Bennett's revelations here, and it becomes quite clear, we wanted this war to go on with all of the horror that that has entailed. And we blocked a possible peace or stopped a possible peace if you prefer. There was a lot more, though, in this interview. Describing his negotiations with Zelensky and Putin, Bennett calls both leaders, quote, pragmatic. Again, that's a characterization that undermines media caricatures of both of these men. As part of the negotiations, Putin had already agreed to drop his demand that Ukraine disarm and had pledged not to kill Zelensky. He agreed to not have regime change. For his part, Zelensky had already agreed to stay out of NATO. That's an issue that Bennett describes as key context, by the way, for Putin's decision initially to invade. Bennett says at one point, quote, there are two very different narratives. The West sees Putin as an imperialist who wants to take over more places. Putin's perception was, wait, when the wall came down, we reached an agreement with NATO that they wouldn't expand and would not touch the belt countries that envelop Russia. Don't bring me NATO, my enemy or rival, and why are you introducing Ukraine into NATO? That's how he describes Putin's thinking. 
Benton then, Bennett then goes on to explain that the U.S. has its own Monroe Doctrine of regional hegemony, and Russia sees our meddling in Ukraine similarly as, quote, don't come here, this is my backyard. Now, this is important, again, not because it erases Russia's culpability, but because it suggests that had we engaged in negotiations before the war, maybe this could have been preventable. It also suggests that this isn't actually a war over values the way it's portrayed, with Putin playing the part of genocidal lunatic and the U.S. as heroic, infallible savior. It's rather a more conventional conflict over resources and national interests, where our own arrogance and willful disregard for Russian red lines plays a not insignificant role. Helpful context if you actually care about ending this war. It is astonishing the lengths that the U.S. press has gone to in order to deceive the American public about the very basics of this conflict, to shield us from any inconvenient facts, to mask any and all U.S. complicity, such as our possible role, for one example, in blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, to thoroughly ignore the costs of our current strategy. And now is a particularly critical time to sober up and to start thinking a lot more clearly. Russia is preparing a major offensive, and according to the RAND Corporation, which is largely funded by the U.S. government, it is unlikely either Ukraine or Russia is going to outright win this war. That means the only end to this conflict is going to come from a negotiated settlement of the type that we killed. Rand also concludes, we need to do whatever we can to avoid a longer war because the costs of such a protracted conflict are unacceptably high. Those costs of a long war include... Ukrainian civilian deaths, Ukrainian economic destruction, global loss of life from increased food and energy prices, the risk of a direct hot war between NATO and Russia, and the risk of Russian nuclear usage. As the report dryly explains, quote, avoiding these two forms of escalation is the paramount U.S. priority. At least it should be the paramount U.S. priority. Unfortunately, as Naftali Bennett himself acknowledges in the interview, a deal of the sort that was outlined in those early days, it might now be impossible to achieve. After the horrors of war, the hardening of everyone's positions, and a year of war propaganda, achieving a ceasefire is certainly no easy task. Bennett name-checks the Russian war crimes committed at Bucha in particular as the sort of atrocity which makes a negotiated settlement so much more difficult. But that degree of difficulty is no excuse for failing to try and continuing to pursue a policy that has only led to more escalation. From invasion to the present day, the Western press has given you a wildly disordered, one-sided, and at times outright false understanding of the very basics of this conflict. They have painted a Disney version of it with simple narratives convenient to Biden the U.S. state and ignored or dismissed anything inconvenient or complicating for that narrative. Look no further than the total lack of media curiosity about who actually blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. This interview is just the latest proof. Whatever the media might say, Biden's decisions have guaranteed carnage and further disaster. It is astonishing, Sagar, that most of the media just ignored this interview. Oh, totally. Ignored it. They ignored the report we covered, have been covering about Boris Johnson Mm -hmm. flying. That was actually reported by Ukrainian, like Western-aligned Ukrainian media. Total blackout here. They ignored what Fiona Hill said about the fact, hey, here were the contours of the deal that came to light. And now you have, in this lengthy interview, um, detailed descriptions from former Israeli PM Bennett about how he engaged, the calls he had, the concessions they were willing to put on the table, and the fact that the U.S. directly leading NATO said, 
no, we don't want this. Russia is weaker than we thought. We want the war. This was an extraordinary one. And also, there is no reason to lie. Why would he Why would he lie about this? And the Israelis have been, you know, I've explained this before. They have a much, very different policy vis-a-vis. They don't care about Russia and Ukraine. First of all, they have a large Russian population. They care about themselves. They've always had very friendly relations with Putin because Putin is actually weirdly kind of pro-Israel uh, for similar reasons. Well, so, they're, they're like allies in Syria. Yeah, exactly. Too, they're allies so in Syria because they're yeah. far. Exactly. So the point is that they don't care. They don't care exactly what happens. And that's why they've refused to sell a lot of weapons to Ukraine. They're, Ukraine asked them for Iron Dome. They're like, no, we're not giving it to you. Uh, to the extent that they've helped, it's that they allowed us to take a bunch of ammo that we have in Israel and give it to Ukraine. That's it. So he has no reason to lie. Um, he also was clearly privy to a lot of the behind the scenes, and he's telling us what happened, and our press just lets it go. I mean, it's totally, it really is nuts, you know, when you just consider, like, how much, how very different the world could have been. And here's the thing. This is one of those where when the history is written 100 years from now, you bet that they're going to focus in a lot on this moment. Absolutely. This yeah. was a pivot. And, yeah. and the reason I keep coming back to it is it is so much harder now right. to get back to that place oh, of where, yeah. again, there were no guarantees. Bennett says 50-50 chance. Mm-hmm. That's a much better chance than where we're at now after all of the horrors and war crimes and atrocities that have been committed and the propaganda and everybody hardening their positions. It will be so much more difficult to get back to that place. And so when I look at, okay, we're literally a week and a half in. It was like a, a weekend, a week and a half in to the war. And they're having actual fruitful negotiations, both sides making key concessions, the outlines of a deal coming together. And we say, no. We want the war. Think of all the hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost between then and now. Think of the destruction of Ukraine. Think of the global pain of the increased food and energy prices. And think of the continued risk of potential nuclear conflagration and the increasingly direct confrontation that we are having with regards to Russia. It's just, I I will never be able to let it go. And then the crime on top of that is the press just completely, uh, completely erasing it. When you hear how uh, Bennett talks about this conflict in the early days, and I want to say, to be fair, he now says, look, maybe they did make the right choice. It's too early to say maybe they were right in blocking that negotiation. He says, at the time, I thought that they were wrong. But when you listen to how uh, Brazil's President Lula, when he was here talking to Biden, which we covered early in the show, the way he talks about it, and the way Bennett was talking about it, you see a lot more congruity and, again, a portrait that is completely hidden um, from the U.S. public ultimately. Yeah. So it, it was astonishing to listen to this interview. I encourage you to take a, the time. to The interview itself is five hours. The Ukraine, I don't know, it's maybe like 40 minutes long. It's worth taking mm-hmm. a listen to exactly how he describes this negotiations. Yeah. Well said. All right, guys, we've been closely tracking that uh, Ohio train derailment. It's actually in a part of Ohio that I used to live very close to. And um, it has turned into just an utter environmental catastrophe. Um, There are reports of animals that have been dying. Residents are saying, hey, you guys told us it's safe to come back. It still smells terrible. I'm still getting headaches. What the hell is going on? We have someone who is uh, an independent journalist there locally, John Russell, who is going to give us the very latest on that situation. So let's get to it. John Russell is the author of The Holler Substack, and he joins us now. Great to see you, sir. Good to see you, man. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good to be here. 
Yeah, our pleasure. Let's go ahead and put your latest piece up on the screen here. Uh, the headline is Railroaded, the Northern Southern, Norfolk Southern Disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, Part 1. Rail workers warned us about a preventable disaster like this. And before we jump into the latest, just so people know a little bit of your background, you're from this area, uh, born and raised, you live close by. Um, you also have, uh, you're an independent journalist, but you're also a man of the people. You're a dive bar bartender. Um, so you hear a lot from uh, local folks in Hemp. I wanted to have you on because you have a real full picture of the, the local community and what the concerns are. Um, so first, just give everybody who maybe hasn't been following this disaster that closely, what exactly happened and where are we now? Yeah, uh, this is a very small rural community on the eastern border of Ohio and Pennsylvania. And what happened, of course, was a catastrophic derailment. Uh, you've seen pictures of the explosion um, you know, news media and officials are deeming it a controlled release. But Norfolk Southern had a train derail uh, in this town. I think the really interesting angle here is uh, the corporate practice, something called precision scheduled railroading um, that could definitely have contributed to an axle failure, which is what happened on this train, which is what caused the derailment is directly related to a corporate practice that is cutting the training and the maintenance and inspection of these trains that are rolling through tiny towns like mine, um, you know, with less uh, safety measures and uh, crew attending to the chemicals that they're carrying. Uh, so obviously that, that uh, backfired and we have an ecological disaster on our hands um, right where I grew up. Yeah, and so right now we've got a, quote, controlled release of toxic chemicals that are happening in the area. <laughs> the government claims everything's fine. People can come back. Yeah, I mean, just just look at that. You want to live anywhere uh, controlled, close to that? Controlled, quote, unquote. Yeah, people are saying that, what is it, yeah. that pets are dying, that people in the air are, are uh, suffering symptoms. What's the official narrative, and then what are people on the ground actually seeing and thinking? Yeah, so the official uh, narrative that comes out of this, I think is a worthwhile thing to talk about. Um, this area of the country is highly industrialized. We are used to industrial accidents. We are used to large companies coming in and extracting our wealth. That has been the, the story of this area for a long, long time. So the official narrative in the press is really focused on uh, how much cancer we're all gonna get from this and when. Um, I think that we should be asking um, the question, why did this derailment happen? Why are we subjected to the chemicals that rele were released from this? And when you talk to workers on the railroad, it's pretty easy to piece together that a story of corporate negligence. Um, Norfolk Southern, um, because of implementing the practices that cut training, that cut maintenance, um, that cut inspections on rail cars, have caught the axle that failed in this case. Um, because they've done all of those things, they've been able to amass immense profits. I mean, they did $10 billion in stock buybacks last year, right? So a lot of the press coverage here has been around the chemicals that have been released and not how Norfolk Southern made a ton of money uh, and left uh, the chance open for a catastrophe like this uh, to happen. Um, when we talk to a lot of people on the ground in the area, um, they're just looking to go back to their normal life. But 
that is uh, a hard thing to be focused on here because the, the, the long-term effects of this kind of release of chemicals aren't going to be known for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the um, particular chemical that there's a lot of concerns uh, around is vinyl chloride. It's described as a colorless compound. It's also a known human carcinogen, can be deadli- deadly if it's inhaled. And uh, as Sagar indicated, there were some local reports of chickens dying, fish turning up dead in the stream, um, other animals that were ill, and human beings who also felt like they they had headache, they could still smell these chemicals even days after the release, and even after officials said, oh, it's all good, it's all safe, nothing to see here. Um, I think an important context to John and what, what you really bring is, you know, this is uh, the part of the country that used to be uh, sort of, you know, very solidly blue, a lot of labor union presence, a lot of sort of like muscle memory for the Democratic Party. And it's the region of the country, and I know this because I used to live there, that has moved the furthest to the right the fastest. So this is sort of like the epicenter of the Trump populist revolt. And so there's a lot of mistrust, I would say, at this point of um, authorities and officials. So when people are hearing from the government, oh, it's, all, it's all good, you can go home, there's not going to be any problem, we, we took care of it. You know, are they, are they believing that? Uh, I, I, w- I would say no. I would say no, they're not. But, uh, you know, we're used to um, this this kind of corporate playbook. I mean, look at this. Here's another great uh, way to think about this. This part of the country um, also was hit very, very hard by the opioid epidemic. I mean, I graduated with 55 kids in my high school class. My connection to East Palestine, um, you know, I used to go up to their homecomings. When you're in a small rural county like this, a lot of the kids know each other. Uh, but even in a small high school, I had uh, more, uh, you know, more than 10 friends passed from the opioid epidemic. When we saw pushes for accountability of companies that are uh, here making a ton of profit uh, and sticking areas like this part of the country uh, with the bag from, from seeking that much profit, uh, the playbook is always the same. Um, you hear you know, industry line that comes out in the initial initial news reports. Uh, and then these companies worth billions and billions of dollars, nobody faces jail time for addicting a part of the country uh, to pills. Nobody will face jail time uh, for a train that derails because of profit-seeking practices that foreclosed on maintenance. Um, usually what you see in these cases that are headquartered in, the, in this part of the country is these big companies making uh, money hand over fist and then just um, paying out damages when these kinds of things happen from the profits that they made. Um, so I think, once again, this is just uh, more from the corporate playbook yeah. um, in another tragic story for this part of the country. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this part of the country has just been like, collateral damage for endless corporate greed and total lack of accountability. And I think you're right that it's, you know, exactly the same playbook that you see unfolding here. Uh, John, thank you so much for for taking the time. Everybody go and subscribe to his fantastic Substack, um, The Holler, which gives you a wonderful look at uh, life in this region. And also, you know, there are a lot of broader national implications here. And John's always in touch with the, the labor community there, too, which is something we care a lot about. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, man. Yep, thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Yeah, our pleasure.
Oh, what a fun show today. Uh, very depressing now, right? I don't know to talk about that. We're going to stick on a couple of those stories. UFOs, of course, because um, we've had a lot of interest. Some people are just waking up to what's happening. But this this train derailment, you cannot move on from this. This is the equivalent of like a major chemical disaster. I mean, essentially like a chemical I'm not going to call it an attack, but like equivalent to what what worst case scenario would look like. And I don't see any coverage of what yeah. what's going on here. It's nuts. Well, you it's, know, a lot of people could die. They really could. It's because yeah. the reason there's no coverage is because everyone is complicit. Right. I mean, the Republicans, the Democrats, like they all have done the bidding of the the rail industry, and we saw it very clearly with uh, Biden and the Democrats and the Republicans all joining together to break the uh, potential mm. strike of rail workers and deny them any uh, the, the paid sick time and other benefits that they definitely deserve. So I think that's why is because there isn't an easy partisan narrative. And so the media doesn't really care. Mm -hmm. It tells you a lot about what captures their attention and what ultimately doesn't. But for the people that live there, I mean, this is an unbelievable disaster. And for the country, it's an absolute, you know, the fact that it was predictable and that it in fact was predicted is part of what makes this also galling and horrifying. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you guys later. Um, thank you to everybody who supports the show. We've got a fun one planned for you tomorrow. We're going to stick with all these stories. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun week. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.